In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. It's Friday, January 20th. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Hey, this is Richard Reed Perry. Hello, this is David Sedaris. Hi, I'm Maggie Gyllenhaal. Hey, it's Chance the Rapper, and you're listening to Q. Q. You're you're listening listening to Q. Q. Hugh Jackman has done everything from Broadway to starring in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he says that nothing has scared him more than his new movie, The Sun. He'll talk about channeling his own experience as a parent and the one daily habit that keeps him focused as an actor. Plus, Anne-Marie McDonald, the acclaimed Canadian author, says that when she writes a novel, she always starts with a single image. For her latest novel, Fane, that image was of a young person staring out onto a bleak landscape. Anne-Marie will tell you how she spun that into a whole world, a world that she could see herself in. That is all coming up right here on Q. Maybe you've heard nominations for this year's Academy Awards will be announced next week. And one of the big questions people are asking is, will this finally be the year that Hugh Jackman wins an Oscar? He's already got an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony Award to his name. All he needs is an Oscar to get that coveted EGOT status. And there is strong speculation that his new film will make it happen. I've tried to be there for you. I've tried to give you strength. What's going on? Are you on drugs? You think you can just live your life doing whatever you feel like? I don't know what's happening to me. In the new movie, The Sun, Hugh Jackman plays a father struggling to support his teenage son through a mental health crisis. It's a follow-up to the Academy Award-winning film, The Father. The Sun had its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, which is where Tom Power got to speak to Hugh Jackman. Their conversation goes to a lot of different places, from Hugh Jackman's start in Australia, to the pressure of playing Wolverine, to the very heavy themes in this new film. How are you? I'm really great. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, are you kidding me? We're so excited to have you. No, I'm going to give you a little public. I told you before, but my driver coming here, Tom, just says, oh, he's the best in the country. Go away. Yeah, I like to compliment people at the front just so to get rid of any of the nasty questions. What you're, <laughs> what you, what you're not saying there is I was also your driver here. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> what Different time. What you're not saying there is he drove me here and yeah, then he, exactly. came, he took off his mustache <laughs> and came in. Congratulations on the film. Thank you, man. Thank you. It is quite a show. It's quite a film. You know? <laughs> but, you know, but seriously, and one that deals with uh, trauma and, and childhood depression and parents' guilt, mm-hmm. when you first read the script, it's a lot. So what, what do you connect with when you first read it? I certainly connect it as a parent. The impotent feeling you have of constant worry and fear and both parents are like, what the hell are we doing or what do we do in these situations, particularly when things are getting tough or there's a crisis. 
I certainly connected to that first. And yeah. I think what I love about the film, about halfway through, there's a great scene I have with Anthony Hopkins, who plays my father, yeah. not the same role, by the way, as in The Father, but yeah. um, is you realise we're all still sons and daughters and children of parents and we carry that with us all our life and that informs our parenting. So for better or worse, you know, most parents, I'm not sure if you're a parent, Tom, but... I'm not, no. You start that journey determined not to make the same mistakes that impacted you growing up or the things that you thought were not great. I, I'm going to be different. Yeah. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do that better. Yeah. And I think one of the beautiful things about the story is we actually, in some ways, unconsciously or consciously, we tend to somehow relive a lot of those and bring all those up. So I certainly felt it was as a parent first and then I think just as a human being, I felt there was something very urgent about the story. Do you feel it? So you, you feel it as a parent, you connect with it as a parent and you connect with it as a human being. Mm-hmm. Do you connect with it as a child? Yeah. It, it brought up a lot for me, shooting the film really? and of my own childhood, things that I had forgotten about or wanted to forget about. Um, and my my father died during the filming. So it was, there was a lot of stuff going on uh, for I'm me so personally. Thank you. Um, and it was I, – I, I think if I could describe myself as an actor, I would be generally someone – I did a lot of training and part of that training was knowing how to balance the work and home life and how to leave your job at work and not carry characters or emotional turmoil at home. And I, I wasn't very successful with this one. I was pretty much a hot mess during this one. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do, right? You know, like I think anyone – that's the thing when you watch this film and you, like, you, with, you, you have someone in your life who – suffers or deals with depression and who doesn't or you have right. something in your life who has it's true we all do right yeah 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 you have you have someone in your life whether it's you or somebody else who is a child of divorce mm-hmm. and who isn't right or like who doesn't have someone in their life yeah. it's hard enough to and when i say hard enough it's moving enough to watch it mm. but to and i know and, we, and we, don't you tell me anything you don't want to tell me but i know these things have come up in your life. I've read interviews you talk about your, yeah. your family life growing up. When, even in the Wolverine stuff I heard you talk right. about where the anger, right? They were the anger right. came from in Wolverine. Yeah. For that to come out in this movie, I can't imagine. I can imagine that's, that's hard, Hugh. Yeah, but it's also beautiful. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm 53. So I, I'm at a point in my life where I'm really interested in the patterns that I unconsciously live. I don't want to keep living them or repeating them, not unconsciously. Um, so I'm probably like most people on a search for for all of that stuff that's within me. And, and acting gives you the most incredible opportunity to face it. But it's hard. It is hard. And I, I'm super grateful for it, but I'm not going to lie to you. There was times where I was struggling to sleep. There was times where I probably hugged my kids and they were like, what the hell is going on with dad? (laughs) I was feeling a real need to connect. And it has certainly changed me, I think, as a parent, for sure. Changed it, huh? I'm different parenting now. Really? Oh, yeah. I think I admit a lot more, for example, things that I thought you're never meant to admit to as a parent, like I'll say to one of my kids, like... I've got to be honest, I ha- actually, mum and I disagree on this and I have no idea who's right or wrong. I just have this weird feeling that that this is not going to end well and can we sit down and talk about it? Now, that 
though that sentence would never have come out of my mouth, we would have had, Deb and I would have had a talk about it, would somehow wrestle our way to it. This is what we think and we sit them down now. This is happening and we think it should be this. Um, and I somehow thought that was parenting or I didn't think it was right. I mean, my kids are 17 and 22, right. so just to give context. I didn't think it was right to share vulnerability, too much vulnerability. I thought that would end up being a burden for them. Yeah. Oh, and a burden for them. Interesting. Yeah, of they, course. Yeah. They don't want to feel unsafe, like, oh, my God, my dad's out of control. Yeah, but, take on dad stuff. I understand that. Right. And yeah. so, but now I will. Like, I'll, I'll say, like, hey, guys, I know I might seem a bit preoccupied or if I seem a bit vacant, I'm just really nervous. I've got my opening night next week and this is bothering me, that's bothering me, and I'm worried about how it'll go. And so, and I see their relief when I say that kind of thing. And it connects us. So there, there's a couple of changes. That's beautiful. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm ready to get letters from parenting experts going, what the hell are you thinking? No, like, no, I don't no. Know, but no, it certainly, yeah. I feel, yeah. part of the conversation has to be leading with vulnerability, even if you're the parent. Yeah. You're supposed to know, supposedly knows. And that... You know, I think there's a line in the movie, love is not enough. It's not always enough. Yeah. Love is the most important thing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't solve problems. It doesn't always tell you how to handle a situation yeah. just because you – and it can get in the way. Yeah. It can make you blind to certain things. Yeah. It can make you feel like I'm the one who's got to fix this. I'm the one who loves this kid more than anyone. Mm-hmm. But maybe someone who's a little more removed or a little more experienced or who's seen it for 40 years is a better person. That's 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 hard, man. That's hard, mm-hmm. but but it's good. I mean, I think leading with vulnerability is always the way to go. You know, I think the more we can be true of ourselves to one another is, is right. Even if there's a problem, at least it's going to be an honest problem. Right. You know what I mean? I don't know about you. I mean, I guess Newfoundland's a bit like Australia. That's yeah. not the way we were brought not up. Our, not our parents' generation. I tell you that much. Right. No, you keep it in. Ooh, yeah. And you do a bit of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I started seeing a therapist about a year and a half ago. Yeah. How's that? Awesome. I, I see one too. It's great. Oh, yeah. I'm like, a driver, his name's Tom. No, I'm joking. No, I'm only joking. I'm joking. You well, I was crying in the backseat <laughs> about an hour ago. I didn't know he was a professional. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. But, but like, I know five, 10 years ago, if I said that to my mates from high school, they're like, oh, she, she's been in Hollywood too long. Yeah. You know, what's wrong? You just got to you know, have a couple of beers with your mates and you talk about it and move on. I'm yeah. like, Actually, I'm not sure a lot of my mates would really have a lot to offer. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they would. But um, there is certainly a place for having a real friend that you can really share everything with. And was, certainly for me, there's a place to having a professional who knows what they're talking about. Oh, it's the best. It's the greatest. You know? Right. And How long fun. have you been? Oh, uh, what am I, 35? So yeah. since I was 28. Really? Yeah, yeah. Had a, had a panic attack, sent me to the hospital, came out, had to go see a therapist. Right. Changed my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And like you, I'm a big mindfulness person. Right. You do a lot of that stuff too, right? Yeah, I've been meditating for 25 years. Yeah. Um, that certainly changed my life in a big way. You got a daily practice? Yeah, twice a day. What, uh, how long? TM, 20 minutes. TM? Yeah. All right. What's your mantra? I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the best question I've ever had. I could have just slipped it out and been expelled. <laughs> yeah, you'd be out. Been expelled from the Maharishi School of Meditation. Does that That's help so you funny. with your acting? For people who don't know, you're not meant to say it out loud. Yeah, it's a transcendental meditation. <laughs> you're not, you're not, you are given a mantra and you're not to say it out. You're not to say it out loud. But I, I almost got you. You almost got I me. I almost got you. That's my hard-hitting gotcha journalism. I get celebrity. <laughs> Are telling me their mantras. That's it. Do you, and then I can never meditate again. Well, does, does, this, ruined. does this help you in your acting career too? For sure. Yeah? I, I actually went to a, a – it was a school of practical philosophy. I was in Perth. 
there was a guy in my school who was in my year who had a quality about him I couldn't put my finger on. I said, something different about you, man. And he said, oh, you know, I meditate. And I said, oh, what's that? And anyway, so I went along to this thing and, and that very first day they gave us a beginner to meditation, which was a kind of mindfulness practice of connecting to your senses twice a day for two minutes. So just sit, feel your body in the chair, feel the breeze on your face, all of that. Two minutes. So I literally went to acting school the next day, my first class with this guru acting teacher. And he said, I'm going to tell you something to do. I'm going to give you an exercise and I'm going to tell you right now, 99% of you will never do it. You'll do it for about a week and then you'll never do it again. So we're all eager and we're listening. He goes, twice a day I want you to sit down and just connect to your senses because the only thing that matters as an actor is being in the present and the only way you can do that is through the senses. If you start thinking, you're already out. So he get, and I'm like looking at my buddy who would taken me to this class. I'm like, this is the thing we got last night. So in my head I was like, oh, this, this thing's going to really help my acting. Yeah. So, so that's why I sort of got into it. And about eight months into meditation I was like, oh, oh, this is, oh, acting's not the, the center of it all. Being yourself and being at home with yourself, that's it. Acting is another activity or being a parent or being a friend or whatever it is. That, that dawned on me about a year later. Well, does it give you that impermanence that you're looking for? Because that, mm. I think one thing that mindfulness and meditation can do is it can give you the sense of the, a comfort and impermanence, that nothing, that, that uh, life uh, does not necessarily have any meaning uh, and that's kind of okay. Uh, maybe that's not even what I want to say. The, the the path that you think you may have yourself or I need to do this and this and this and this is right. is one that is created and I am of the right. mindset that the only path that we have for one another is to love one another because our life is fleeting and impermanent. We should try to create kindness and love for one another, right? That just became a meme, what you just said, by the way. It's now a meme. Am I, am I going to be a meme? That's like a meme. Keyboard cat. It literally, <laughs> that was perfectly said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to take in the feeling. I think if someone is listening for me is the feeling of it is being yourself, completely yourself at home, not burdened by the got to, got to mind. I got to do this. I should do this. I got to be doing this. I got to be done. This is who I That seems to run all the time. And with meditation, I feel it just go away and I just can be myself. Because I think you're very confusing to a lot of people because your, 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 your choice is artistically, Hugh. <laughs> right. Well, you know. That you're, confused you're, me sometimes. You're, you're, you're Wolverine, like a right. Marvel star, right. right? Like big old action star. I got a question about that afterwards, okay. by the way. And you're, you're in a heartbreaking drama. You're in one-man shows. You're in – you're like a musical theater dude. You're like a big musical theater dude. Right. That's the most confusing to me. Is that so? Oh, yeah. My first job, I was in Beauty and the Beast on stage. They made me have singing lessons every – I never sung in my life before. How, do, what, what, how did you end my up doing My agent just said, oh, they look, they can't find someone to play guest on. And I said, well, I'm not a singer. And they said, yeah, but they really – they've looked everywhere. Like, just go for it. Didn't you do it in Australia? Didn't yeah. you do it? Yeah, and this yeah. was it. And oh, they yeah? finally – I jumped through a lot of hoops. And I remember luckily reading first for the part. And I could see them all going, oh. I could see them go, oh. And then I sang and I can see them collectively go, oh. and then finally this was the Australians they said the Americans are coming out in a month get some singing lessons dude so I got some singing lessons and the Americans went but the Australian guy who was there a month ago goes no this is so much better than a month ago you don't know what you saw a month ago like we don't start for three months like if he can improve like that so they took a bet on me but in my contract it must have singing lesson every week oh go away they paid for me I'm a lead in a musical to have singing lessons so the most surprising left turn of my career has been musicals and I, I love them yeah 
the the the, the so the musicals, <laughs> the, the sad films, yeah, the one man shows, the I mean, performing music, the action star stuff. I mean, it makes sense. I was going to ask you this question about like, is there? What's your relationship with risk in your career? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, we'll go ahead then. Say yes. Yeah. Well, like, absolutely. For me, I always had in my head keep as many doors open. I knew that's what I loved from when I trained as an actor. I loved, you know, when you train, you do fencing and then you do a scene like a Shakespeare class and then you'll have singing once a week. And fencing it, like with swords? Yeah. It's all this old schools acting. It's all about fight combat but also how to use your body, yeah. voice lessons, movement lessons, circus skills. Like you would do literally everything and then you're doing a, a mammoth play and then you're doing a comedy and I thrived on that. So I knew – if I could have my choice, the more variety, the better. And so I tried to keep as many doors open as I could. And there was a little period in there with X-Men where I could see <laughs> I was around X-Men 2, 3. I was like, mm, the scripts that are coming in for me are, are very much like that. And that was it, action-y sort of reluctant hero sort of roles. And so I just constantly looked for other things, whether it be in the theatre or or whatever. To Why? Keep... To, 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 to nourish your soul? Is that the reason or – I was a very scared – this is a great question, Tom. I was a very scared kid, hated feeling scared, hated that feeling of that I was going to be trapped because my fear would be too great. So I would always push through and my experience has been, including this role, by the way, I don't think I've ever been as scared to take on a role as this, but the more scared I am, the more courage I find – the more rewarding the whole thing becomes, whether it's a success or not. So my relationship with the risk is uncomfortable. I've had to spend many years getting comfortable with that and then realising that if I'm too comfortable, I'm probably doing pretty average stuff. That's a powerful thing to figure out for yourself. Yeah, it sucks. I wish I – sometimes I'm like, oh, it's so nice just to be more comfortable. I mean people assume – I know people say to me all the time, like, you did nine movies as Wolverine. It must have been a walk in the park. I'm like, no, no. Every time I put on those claws, like, you only have to know me for three seconds and I'm very different from that character. And it, and it always felt hard to me. I heard a story about you with the Wolverine thing that I found very interesting, that um, you had come from the theatre and that the theatre is an ensemble. Right. And then when Wolverine happens, you are the soul. You are the, the, the S-O-L-E. Like you are the the, right. the only, you are the number one on the call sheet is what mm -hmm. they call it, right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden people are coming to you with questions and all of a sudden you are having to represent this franchise mm -hmm. and it's not an ensemble anymore. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say that. And now this makes sense because I heard you say that it was very lonely to do mm -hmm. that. But now I understand it must have also been pretty scary to do that. Scary. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to break down any feeling on set of, hey, I'm Wolverine, back it up. Don't talk to me. I say, that, I say that every day. To people. <laughs> people don't know that. How does it work? Yeah, I say, hi, I'm Wolverine. And they go, you're obviously not. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable in that position. But oh, yeah? I also, over time, grew into that, that it's okay. It's all right to be number one on the call sheet. It's okay. And rather than shy away from it, use it to set a tone on the set. And then I, for, me, for me, the tone is I want everyone to feel appreciated and valued for their work. I think that's where the best results come from and the most rewarding feeling for everybody is. But I had to come to terms with that feeling of this could be a bit lonely and that's why I love going back to the theatre. I mean this, I, this, it, this, this film is, is – I mean it's originally a, a play. Yeah. But it, the, 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 if you don't mind me saying so, I don't know if this is an insult, the film very much reads still as a play to me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not very often and it's so beautiful to get a six-page scene. I had a six-page scene with Anthony Hopkins, six-page scene with Young Zen, where are two or three of them, and with Laura Dern in that restaurant, and it's beautiful because normally in film it's like a couple of minutes, but because it was crafted from a play, there are these beautiful scenes, and I think actually it's it's so great on film to watch two characters really be able to sink into it. But, yeah, I think if you know anything about film or plays, you can see where it's come from. I mean... I do think Florian, in both The Father and this, both were players originally, has found a way to make the cinematic language yeah. perfect for it. And Yeah. There is something about watching you and Laura in those scenes and watching how you lean on each other in a way that feels so authentic to the way two divorced parents would have to try and find a way to come together, but also in the way that theatrical actors would have to find a way to bond. You know, in, right. in a hard scene too. You know, yeah. We it's funny. It did have that feeling of a play. How we were, and it was part to do with COVID. Yeah. So we weren't. No one was going out. We were all at a hotel. So we were in a bubble together, mm-hmm. and we all were hanging out together and relying on each other. Um, my wife was there with me and my kids, and Laura was on her own at the time coming in. So she sort of became part of our family, and you can feel, even though I just met her, I I felt with Laura, and this is more luck than anything, I guess, I felt uh, like we'd known each other for 20 years. And that you can feel that in the scenes. Yeah, there's a, there's a selflessness in, in, this, uh, in this film from you, and I, I can see it now, you know, a, a gift to people, and I can see that through the, the mindfulness. I'm so glad you said it because I was going to say it, and it would feel a bit weird if I said <laughs> that, that, I, was, that I was a gift. It was a gift. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You can say it right after you tell me what, right after you tell me what your mantra is. We're, uh, we're, we're laughing. Um, uh, just a really, really beautiful performance, and I, I – I think there's so much conversation around this thing about, oh, my God, is he going to get the Oscar nominee? Is he going to win the Oscar, the O for the EGOT and all that stuff? But like, <laughs> if there's one thing I can tell from talking to you is that there's something something much more deeper in the offering that you give to people creatively. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. I think they're best friends now. That was it. That was Tom Powers' conversation with Hugh Jackman. He stars in the new movie, The Sun, which is out today. It's a follow-up to the Academy Award-winning movie, The Father, and it had its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Anne-Marie McDonald is one of Canada's most celebrated writers. You might have read her first novel, Fall on Your Knees, when it came out back in 1996. It was a runaway hit. It is nearly 600 pages long. It sold half a million copies. That's just in Canada. Fall on Your Knees also put Anne-Marie on the map as a brilliant writer, one who could transport you to fascinating worlds with her depth and with her attention to detail. 
And now Anne-Marie MacDonald has brought that same sharp writing to her latest novel called Fane. It's set in the late 19th century, and it's about a crumbling estate that straddles the border between England and Scotland. And hey, if you want to know more about Anne-Marie, you can head to CBC Arts. They have a new piece coming out later today that is all about Anne-Marie as part of their queries column. It'll be up just in time for your weekend reading. But for now, here is Tom Powers' conversation with Anne-Marie MacDonald. Thanks for being here. Likewise, Tom. It's an absolute pleasure. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I wouldn't. No, how Never. could you? Can you tell me the story at the top of the book about you had some sort of image come to your mind? I always start with an image. And if it has staying power, right, then I go, okay, is, is, oh, it's this again. And then I'm being called. I'm being called to investigate that image. And in this case, it was the image of a young person, uh, Gender could be could be any gender. Yeah. And they're looking off into the distance. I know that they're looking at an endless moorland, boggy expanse, which is something, even saying those words enlivens me. I find it is a deeply stimulating and inspiring landscape. Yeah. And I didn't really even know why. I knew that I was always drawn to that kind of landscape. When I was a little kid and kids could wander, and I did, I would always end up going out somewhere. And if I could find wetlands, that's where I was, just to dare myself to go one more foot and one more foot. And are you sinking now? And what will happen if there's quicksand? And he always come home with a soaker and burrs. And there is something about knowing that there's millions. It's like, you remember the beginning of Dragnet? There's a million stories in the naked city. Sure. There's, there is a billion. There are countless stories in that clicketing secret world yeah. of wetlands, especially yeah. a moorland. It looks like nothing's happening. There's so much life there. It's incredible. I think of it as a liquid library. There's a, there's another there's another world happening within those wetlands. Oh, there's another masses level. and masses. How do you go from that, uh, having this image having this sort of like uh, internal investigation of the meaning of the wetlands to a 720 what? Uh, 21? 21. 721 page Victorian novel. Well, because this young person, I can see what they're wearing. This is late 19th century and this is not feminine garb, but I think this is a girl so far, yeah. you know? Yeah. And um, this landscape, we're, we're, we're on a moor. We're in the late 19th century, yeah. and this is where my imagination was forged, okay? When I was 10 years old, I read Jane Eyre for the first time. So I'm in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. There's a young protagonist. There's a mysterious moorland. There is – oh, wait a second. What's that I spy on the horizon? Is that a crumbling mansion? Yes, it is. What's it made of? Who lives there? What are the secrets? And of course, Victorian literature is – there's always a quest for identity. If, if, if there's a mansion, it's crumbling and it, it does house secrets and there, there will be a quest. And I love these traditional readerly delights when I encounter them such that, oh, the portrait on the stairs of the dead mother and the dead baby brother – for me, they're delightful as a reader. Mm -hmm. And I go, I can use all those familiar tropes and narrative devices to lead the reader on an immersive journey, which actually is grappling with some pretty contemporary questions about sexuality, gender, identity. I've often, but I've also heard you say something along the lines of, and I don't mean to misquote you here, that um, while we refer to questions around sexuality and gender 
as contemporary ones. That if we if we actually do real research, yeah. we see that these conversations were happening. You're smiling at me. Yeah. These conversations were happening in the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Huge, huge. In fact, they become really urgent in the late 19th century because the Victorian era is an era that is obsessed with taxonomy and defining, categorizing species, class, sex, gender. It becomes a time of really rigorously enforced gender norms and uh, sex roles. So, so that, that is interesting to you, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. To know that these conversations, we, we, we frame them as something that's been happening in the last 40, 50 years. Oh, God, no. It's yeah. all extremely urgent then as well, but heavily enforced. It's really locked down. You will go to jail if you are caught cross-dressing, quote unquote. Right, right, right. So well, what, is fascinating, what is interesting to you about that? Well, the era that we're living in now, yeah. our own contemporary modern era, is all being percolated back then. You know, what is going to blossom in science and art and what's going to detonate in terms of violence and global conflict, it's all happening then. If, if I'm not mistaken, what you're saying is that like, we tend to think about our present moment as being informed by a very short history, essentially like our grandparents, maybe our great-grandparents, that the things that led to um, – that the, the, the world we live in right now um, of, of some level of unrest – uh, we might be able to say, oh, well, that comes from the Vietnam War. And we might not want to look back at, oh, actually, there were anti-war sentiments happening within the Civil War, you know, and that like if you Big go time. back and forth, these things were. So what, what you're saying is you, what you're interested in doing is looking back not just at the brief history, but at the long, long history that leads to these moments that we're in right now. Absolutely. The antecedents, the seeds. Abs yes, that fascinating. Thank you. You said it way better than I could have. That's why I make up stories. I can't actually talk about this. No, stuff. you're doing great. I can and only make up stories about it. And I can I can tour with you whenever you want. I'm very reasonable. Honestly, honestly, that would be great. I'm very reasonable. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll, I'll do it. I'm very I'm a reasonable fee. Uh, just ask the CBC. Do you want to read something? <laughs> sure, I'd love to. We could get a taste of this more for the for the first time. It is not possible to run across a moor. Moorland looks smooth from a distance, but with its tufts and tussocks and heathery hummocks, it is as convolute as brain, such that, as in accounts of travellers who have been carried off by fairy, only to return and find fifty years have passed in our world in the space of five days in fairy world, so it is with distance, whereby a quarter mile across moorland is like a league over ordinary ground— Soon enough, I was no longer running, but plodding, then staggering, joyful to my marrow, for the moor never failed to meet me and best me and buoy me. Keep off the bog, came Knox's cry behind me. I raised a hand in acknowledgement, but neither slowed nor turned, for my old nurse squawked the same warning every day. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and then I should say who it was. That's, uh, uh, that's Amy McDonald reading from her new book, Fane. Tell me a little bit about your uh, protagonist. When we meet her, Charlotte Bell, the Honorable Charlotte Bell, is on the verge of celebrating her 12th birthday. Charlotte. Oh, yeah. Charlotte Bell. Bus busted, yes. Bronte. Guilty as charged. Charlotte's, what was Charlotte Bronte's alter ego? Currer Bell. There we go. I just watched the Emily Bronte movie. That's the, reason. That's the only reason I know that. Which Emily Bronte movie? There's a new Emily Bronte movie. It's, it's called Emily. It's pretty good. Okay. Okay. The Honorable Charlotte Bell is on the verge of celebrating her 12th birthday. She has grown up within the confines, but you, can we even call them confines? Because it's a 12,000-acre it's a estate 
of Moorland, and she is free to wander. And there's an old man of all work called Burn, and he has taught her to safely traverse the moor and to know the difference between uh, solid ground and uh, a, a depthless pool that might be covered with the merest mantle of green. You know, the greenest ground may prove the treacherous, the, the most treacherous, you know, because you could sink without a trace. But that said, she's free to roam, and she knows all the creatures and um, loves loves this land. But beyond its borders, she must not stray because she has been raised with the knowledge that she has a condition which renders her susceptible to germs being brought in from the outside and by outside people. So her acquaintance is limited to this sort of skeleton staff on the, in the house and her beloved father. But on, her, on the occasion of her 12th birthday, he does something extraordinary. He brings her, he obtains for her a tutor, a 19-year-old young man who's shocked to find that his new pupil is in fact a girl, which is bordering on scandalous. It's just not done. Mm -hmm. So her world begins to enlarge as her father says, well, it looks as though you may be outgrowing your condition. I'm trying. I'm, there's a no spoiler. I'm trying to be But you know what? Here. We can also, we can, we, I don't consider her condition to be a spoiler because it's a fact of her body that she has been born with what is now in many quarters referred to as a, an intersex trait. Right. And she has a normal body. Mm-hmm. Um, it has an, an it has a, a variation. Mm-hmm. She has a genital variation, mm-hmm. which is a normal variation, but mm-hmm. which in our own day is still treated and pathologized and often quote-unquote, surgically corrected, which, and, and there are people, there are activists now, and, and I stand with them uh, who are trying to make this against the law. Mm-hmm. That, that form of mutilation? It's a, yes, it's mutilation, plain and simple, however well-intentioned. What, what, what brought her to your mind, do you think? This is, she's been coming to me probably my whole life. I, there's a kid energy that runs through this book, even though you know we're, we go back and we explore the romance between her parents, and there's like there's buckets and buckets of plot, right, and mystery. Yeah. yeah. And what it what drives it and enlivens it is this kid with her kid like energy and her curiosity and her incredible optimism, and ultimately her innocence when she comes up against what she thinks is going to be opportunity, as in fact it's a scalpel that's going to be wielded against her to make her quote-unquote, normal and marriageable. And, you know, as a, as, um, a queer person, as a lesbian, uh, I, for me, it's, it, it, it's, it's not difficult for me. It's a short walk between me and my own, um, I won't mince words, my own traumatic experience with coming out and trying to be in this world that uh, needed very, very, very badly to change me, if not mutilate me, into being normal. And it still is happening. And sure, there's a lot that's different and there's a lot that's way better now. But it still ain't no picnic No, if you don't fit the mold. It, it, it's a short walk between what we're, what we're talking about with, with Charlotte in this book and, and what Charlotte's going through here and the lack of acceptance and the, the, the systemic uh, and quite physical actual changing that they want to do to her yes, and, and, you, and your own experience that you, you were able to uh, uh, put, put yourself in that experience a little time Absolutely, yeah, because yeah. Who, who gets to say what is normal? Yeah. Who gets to say who is well and who is not? Yeah. And certainly, we need look no for, further than the history of women 
in medicine, not as medical practitioners, but as subjects of medicine. In the late 19th century is a wealth of information. I did, I did many deep dives and spent a lot of time researching. Late, I, I, I quip that I am qualified to be a late 19th century freelance gynecologist. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I mean, when I went to original sources, it was too fascinating. You're a bit of a researcher, you said? Huge, yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I spent three months in the Osler Library of the History of Medicine at McGill University in Montreal alone, like just there alone. And I was in Glasgow and Edinburgh and, you know, show me a museum of the history of medicine and surgery and I am – just absolutely compelled. I can't get enough of it. But, but you seem to be compelled uh, by something more than just accuracy. You seem to be compelled by something like it, it almost because when you when you said to me earlier, "Hey, when I look back in, into the eighteenth and nineteenth, and maybe I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth." Well, please do. But, you're but, actually you're excellent. You're better than I am at it. Oh Thank no, you. you're, you're killing it. Eighteenth, uh, you, you say you find queer liberation movements in the seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth century. That doesn't feel like a accuracy to me. It feels like comfort. It feels like it gives you something. It gives me solace. It makes me know that there's always a continuum. We have more connecting us than dividing us. And we need to know our history. I'm Tom Power, and you're listening to my conversation with award-winning and best-selling Canadian author Anne-Marie MacDonald. She's written a new novel called Fane, which is a huge Victorian-era book with buckets of plot, as you might have heard her say a few minutes ago. I wanted to go back to when Anne-Marie's first book, Fall on Your Knees, came out. I was curious about how things changed for her when this Canadian queer epic novel absolutely exploded in popularity. Fall on Your Knees comes out in 1996. Sweeping story about four sisters from a Cape Breton family in the first half of the 20th century. Where in Cape Breton are you from? My mom is from, well, both my parents are, are deceased now Yeah. at the ends of long, good lives. But my mom was from Sydney. Yeah. My lovely. dad was from New Waterford. Ah, yeah. Gorgeous. Yes. Lovely part of the country. I believe. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the book is a, a massive hit. The hardcover spends 57 weeks on the Globe and Mail bestseller list. I want to say that again. The hardcover. <laughs> on the Globe and Mail bestseller list for 57 weeks. Newspapers run adjectives like stunning, brilliant, beautiful, magnetic. It becomes an Oprah's book club pick, which is – we'll get to that in a second. But before all this happens, you're someone who's never written a novel before, if I'm not mistaken. You are sitting there cranking out what's going to end up being the 600-page blockbuster. At any point, do you have any idea that this, this might happen. Like I've talked to songwriters who have who've been willing to admit to me that when they were in the middle of writing like Stairway to Heaven, they go like, yeah, I kind of knew. I kind of knew it was going to do something. Any idea? I didn't know because uh, I was new to publishing what that would look like yeah. or what that could look like. Um, but I write with the expectation, whether it's, uh, whether it's a play or a book, I write with the expectation that I'm going to give it to people and they're going to enjoy it and they're going to want to give it to their friends. I mean, I know that that's not cool of me, but it, it really is why I, I do it. I do it for other, I do it for the audience and for the readers because I identify with them and I go, I want to, I want to write a book that I would like to read. I want to write a show that I would like to see. And I, you know, you're supposed to be cool and not care and you're supposed to do your art. And I don't believe that. I think that it's for other people. And it would shock me if people – if there weren't a lot of people who didn't have a good time reading my books. I would think, oh, well, why am I doing that then? Why am I putting all of this work and all of this love and passion into it? 
what, so that people will think that uh, it's inaccessible. I also just feel like I can be very uncompromising about my vision and what I think is very important to say in this world and that I can, it always can come through a story that will have an invitation in it and it's always welcoming such that people who might not want to spend any time with a queer love story the way that, you know, Fall on Your Knees has and just about everything else that I've written has, yeah, right? Well. And this is like years ago I'm doing this when it's anathema to do that. I go Anathema to do? Anathema to have like, to think that anything with queer content is going to become that popular. Right. It's like, what do you think you're doing? Like, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. Good point. There right? hadn't, there hadn't been these big, no. massive queer novels at no, this point. No, no, no. Not at all. So that's why I'm saying that I, I go, I want to invite people who might, if I asked them, yeah. would you like to uh, lose yourself in a 500 plus page queer novel? They would go, no. Yeah. But I invite them into the story. Yeah. And before they know it, they are with that story. They are with those people. They can close it at any time. But a lot of people came on that journey. A lot of people who never dreamed that they could identify beyond their, might, what might even be prejudices. But I also believe that people are always more ready to join and to open and to listen and to identify and to ally themselves with people whose experience might be very different from their own. Part of, the, you know, part of what I'm talking, the way I'm talking, has everything to do with my mother's Lebanese immigrant background. What was your mom's like, name? Uh, Abbas, Mary Abbas yeah. Abbas. Yeah. Yeah, so you know that name probably yeah, from the Maritimes. Yeah, yeah. It's all over the Maritimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There That's it is. all my family. Okay. Yeah, those are all my cousins. And you, so what did your mom have to do with this? Well, you know, for her, it's like, <laughs> number one, if you have a talent, it's from God, and you have to make the most of it, and it's not yours alone. It belongs to everybody. It, you have to share it. You have to make the most of it because it came from God. Yeah. That's nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, it, if you have a, for example, if you have a lovely singing voice, sing out. Don't you be singing in the shower. Yeah. Someone asks you to sing, you sing. Then there's also an immigrant uh, drive and ambition. And you're not ashamed by success. You're not ashamed about ambition and the idea that somebody loved your book enough to buy it. You're proud of that. Wow. And I'm not, I'm not pretending to say anything but what I think is the most important thing in the world to say. And I'm saying it through stories. And I'm also, I'm an entertainer too, right? Yeah. So maybe I'm a hybrid. I know I'm a hybrid. Yeah. My father comes from a lot of dry-eyed, like generations of dry-eyed, bony-kneed Scottish people who turn lobster in the sun. Yeah, right. So that's the other side. Right. But, and also my mother, like when she would cook, yeah. there's 15 dishes on the table. And that's how I feel about my work. Like there's something there for everyone. And if you go away hungry, that's not my fault. Right. If, if you're reading Fane and you see, <laughs> if you go away hungry, that's not my fault. If you, if you read Fane you may be brought in by the queer uh, love story. You might be brought in by the landscape. You might yes. be by, you might be brought in by you love the Brontes and you love a good old Victorian or the traditional novel. heterosexual bodice ripping romance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love how you leaned in for that. But you are going to find that, that that'll get you in, and then your 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 mind might be opened a little bit. Absolutely. That's and powerful. I go, I'm going to look after you. I'm not going to. I'm hoping that I'm going to just make you feel like you're discovering these things on your own. That it's immersive. That nobody wrote this book. Forget about me. Level with me here. Yeah. What does the Oprah's Book Club thing really do? I'm always been very curious about oh, that. Oh, well, you know what? It's like she presses a button and you sell about a million books in the United States Serious? of America. Seriously? Yeah. When you haven't been anywhere before, like it, they don't care. Your life changes kind of. Yeah, your life changes. You pay your mortgage. Done. Wow. Yep. What was that? Is, is, that, a, is that a phone call? Yep. 
Oprah? Yep. Calls? Yep. No. Her producer calls. Yeah. And you think it's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and then they say, stand by. And Oprah would like to talk to you. And you think it's a joke. And then it's Oprah's voice. And it, it really is. Right. And it was quite extraordinary because it's that American level of nuclear fame combined with the friendliness, a direct friendliness, which is also – it is a strange juxtaposition because she is a friendly, warm and, and really decent – like I had such a nice, decent time with her. Yeah. And I asked – I remember asking her her staff there, her team in the studio, anyone from like a production assistant to a makeup artist, they loved her as a boss. Mm-hmm. And they told a story about how they all went to New York um, to do a – a, a show where Oprah and and Martha Stewart did a show together, and they said that they were really glad they were working for Oprah <laughs> and not the other uh, extraordinarily powerful woman. Right? Uh, is 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 it overwhelming at all? It was overwhelming. I mean, you know what? Being somebody who uh, is all, all already deals with, and I, I know I'm going to make this sound funny because it's the rhythm of comedy, but it's absolutely true. I'm no stranger to early trauma. Uh, so I'm also because I'm a high functioning person. I can stay calm and lucid and rational when the most extraordinary things are happening, which means that there's a delay. So it was only like way after the whole Oprah experience that I felt like I had just very nearly been hit by a really shiny red sports car, and that's the encounter with American fame and wealth. Is that what does that look like? Is that it, right? Whoa! That just about killed me. So you're you're taking it back. A yeah, bit. it's just like whoa! Wow. That's a lot of power, and to be in the presence, it's like American-sized fame and celebrity, and it is. Um, I think it's um, not for you. Well, I, I I it was a nice place to visit. Yeah, you're right about that. I understand. Um, what keeps you creating? Uh, just the enjoyment of stories. Really? Yeah, the yeah. enjoyment of going. Oh, there's an idea. What if I if I follow that character onto that landscape or into that neighborhood? Where are they going to take me? What am I going to find out? Also, I I just love mystery. I love story. It's always as much of a mystery to me when I begin. I don't begin knowing the ending. I have to write my way through. You're kidding me. Oh, no, I never know. I never know where this is going. There's that's no outline cr- with this thing? No, There's- and that's a cr- crazy way to work. It's a really hard way to work. I work that way so that I'll feel like it's real deal. You are writing these stories. You are getting to know these characters like yeah. I am as I read it. Yeah, and when, as soon as I find out something about the narrative, then I'm going right back to the beginning and I'm having to set it all up over and over and over again so that you won't notice Anything but that you're having an immersive experience in a whole other world that nobody created but that you're just in. That's my goal. That's a beautiful, beautiful goal and and I think well accomplished. Nice to talk to you. Likewise, Tom. Thank you. That was Tom Powers' conversation with the writer Anne-Marie MacDonald. Head to cbc.ca slash arts to read their great new article with Anne-Marie as part of their queries column. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. When it comes to Motown, they don't come much bigger than The Temptations. The vocal harmony group from Detroit have sold millions of records and topped the charts all over the world with songs like this.
That's The Temptations, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Ain't Too Proud is also the name of a musical about the band. It started on Broadway. Now it's traveling across North America, making its way to some Canadian cities next fall. The musical is all about the band's journey to fame and the personal and political events that threatened to tear them apart. Otis Williams has been with The Temptations since day one. He is the sole surviving member of the original lineup, and he spoke to Tom Power back when The Temptations turned 60. They talked about everything from moving to Detroit, the early days of Motown, and the band's breakaway hits. One thing that crossed my mind while I was listening to this was that the experience of being in the studio singing into a microphone with The Temptations must be a little bit different now than it was back then. Um, in the, can you tell me a little bit about that? In the old days, were you around five microphones, four microphones in one room? Is that different now? Oh, and one thing we've learned, the one thing that's constant in life is change. And when we started out, oh, mother all everybody, the musicians, the wonderful bad, uh, wonderful uh, punk brothers, the Temptations, uh, whoever is producing us, be it Smokey Robinson or Norman Whitfield, you know, we would all be in the studio at the same time, you know. So to come from that to now when we go into the studio, it's just uh, primarily we sing into track and whoever the producer is, you know. But other than that, it's not like it used to be because we used to have fun uh, when we all recorded together, especially with the Funk Brothers, you know, because they're, they were noted musicians, you know, and so we would run down the track, and if they would make a mistake, or we would ride them, the producers say, all right, Timps, y'all cut it out, we got to record this record. So uh, we had those kind of wonderful, fun days back during those days. But today, you know, like I say, it's almost like an isolation kind of recording with just the, the Timps, whoever is producing, and the engineer, and that's it. Are, are the, is the group singing all at the same time, or are you singing at oh, different yeah. times? Oh, yeah, no, we still sing at the same time. And a lot of time it depends on the method. You know, each producer would have his own way of, like, uh, like to record. You know, like, uh, case in point, when uh, we did uh, Is It Gonna Be Yes or No with Smokey Robinson, who also wrote it, produced it, and performed with us on it, uh, we all were in the studio together. I, I want to listen to that track. Take a listen to this. That's The Temptations featuring Smokey Robinson and Is It Gonna Be Yes or No. Tell me a little bit about this collaboration. And you guys, Smokey Robinson has been a big part of the story. He's written some big hits for you guys. I mean, you guys were together in the early days of Motown really taking off. What's it like when you and Smokey are in the studio working on a song like this? It's like magic that never ends. Because we haven't been in the studio with Smokey since a while, back during the 60s. And when we did this uh, recording for Smoking, it was like nothing changed. If any changed, it was better, you know. And Smokey was the one that started us with the way you do the things you do, my girl, since I lost my baby, and uh, some of our earlier hits. So I called Smokey and I say, hey, Smoke, I want you to be on this album with us, man. He said, and he calls me Oak, O A K, Oak. Okay, Oak, I want you to write it and produce it. Whatever you want, Oak, I'll do it. So uh, that's how came about and Smokey is on the album with us and uh, he sounded sexy and he used that sexy vibrato. I said, Smokey, you being bad. I know why you're using that vibrato like that. You're making the women want to get upset. So we had fun doing it. 
<laughs> Why does he call you Oak? Uh, he calls me Oak because he would tell Barry even called me that. He said, Otis, you've had some wonderful, powerful singers around you. But if it wasn't for you, there would be no temptation. And he said, because uh, you just helped the group together in spite of all the things that you have been uh, through. He said, oak, like a uh, strong oak tree. You moved to Detroit from Texas when you were 11 or 12 years old. It's a yes. big move. What was it like? What was Detroit like when you got there? Look, when you come from Texarkana, Texas, I tell people I used to run up and down and grab a rose with uh, coveralls on, barefoot and holding hot water cornbread in my hand. And when you come from that kind of environment to move to a big city, whereas I was mesmerized with all the cars and all the people, you know, so it was a heck of a transition to adjust to, you know, and uh, I, I'm very glad that as fate would have it, my mother had me to come up to Detroit because little did we know that's where everything would start happening for me as a, you know, artist. So you, 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 you I mean, I, I think what's interesting here is that as an oak, not just of the Temptations, but really of the mythical Detroit that I have in my mind of the incredible scene that happened around Motown, you know, you, you get on Barry Gordy and Motown's radar, Motown artists become these music legends, almost, you know, bigger than life itself. What was it like inside the Motown offices? Motown almost had, would take on the, the form of a community center, you know, because you would go up to Motown even if you didn't have to record. We would hang around up there and, uh, you know, sit and talk with various artists and producers and uh, songwriters and what have you. And it was just another kind of wonderful vibe being there, you know. And one of the things that I was tell I would tell people that, you know, you come to Motown and you sit out on the steps on the lawn. And James Jameson, the famous bass player for the Funk Brothers, he was into martial arts. And Barry Gordy was uh, into boxing. He was a boxer before he became successful as, uh, uh, as president of Motown. To see them sit out, uh, to sit out front and see Barry Gordon get in his boxing position and uh, Jameson get in his karate stance. And then neither one of them do any of that. Boy, I'll whoop your this and that. Down. I'll knock your shorts up. And we stood there and laughed. But it was fun. It was that, that kind of fun being there watching the president of Motown and the Funk Brothers bass player act like kids. You know, Barry Gordy being a boxer doesn't surprise me because I think you have to have that kind of mentality to have the success that he had, that persistence, you know. Yeah, that was Barry. That, uh, strictly picky hume uh, to the minutiae. You know, how you want things to be. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just glad that, uh, you know, it happened because uh, he is still a funny, wonderful man at 92 years old. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Take a listen to this. You know, you could have been a handler The way you swept me off the feet The Temptations, with the way you do the things you do, one of the greatest songs of all time. That was a that was a, a life changing, career changing song for you, wasn't it? It was. You know, uh, Smokey was telling me at one time when the, uh, the Miracles they were on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and I guess they were having fun in the uh, cars or however they were, you know, being transportation, uh, being uh, moving about, and somebody started, "You got a smile so bright." And they led on up to what it is now. You know, so one day uh, when Smokey got back into uh, Detroit, he called 
uh, the Timps. And at the time, the Timps consisted of Eddie Kendricks, Paul Williams, David Ruffin, Melvin Franklin, and myself. So he said, oh, I got a song for you guys. Come on up to the studio. So it was a cold January night, winter. I never will forget it. And as we walked to Motown, and we got there, and he took us upstairs to the rehearsal room. So Smokey sat down at the, uh, the keyboards, and uh, he passed out the, uh, the lyrics. So I'm reading the lyrics, and I'm saying, you got a smile so bright. Could have been a candle. Oh, and he's so tight. Man, what the? Uh, this is some jacked up stuff. So, okay, we go downstairs and went to the studio, and we started recording and put it, putting the lyrics and everything together with the, the music. And when we finished it, I stood there and I said, that's pretty clever. So I came back and I told Smokey, I said, man, you know you and whomever helped you write this here. You made something that was so nonsense, like you made it into some common sense or nonsense. So whatever. And next thing you know, when they released, I released it, uh, it started running up the charts, you know, and it has been the, that's uh, one of the songs that we can never take out our lineup. And I tell the guys, you know, the way you do the things you do, my girl, um, just my imagination, ain't too proud. Uh, we can never take those out of the lineup. We have to, whatever new songs, like uh, the song that Smokey have out on us now, we have to find a special kind of way to insert it in the lineup. So my girl and the way you do the things you do, are their mainstays in the lineup of uh, the rundown of the show. Let's listen to a little bit of My Girl. Let's do it. I'm Tom Power. My guest is Dr. Otis Williams, founding member of The Temptations. I got a couple of questions about this song. First, what do you remember about recording it? I remember when Smokey came to see us at the 20 Grand in Detroit, a noted nightclub, and he came to see us and he was so knocked out over our performance. So when he came backstage, he was saying, man, the show was great. You guys are fantastic. And then he stopped and he looked at David Ruffin. He said, I have a song for you. And us being young, man, bring it on. We can sing anything. So we went to the Apollo, the Miracles of Headlining, and we were co-starring. And we rehearsed My Girl in between shows. But when we finished the Apollo and came back to Detroit, and we went into the studio to put the voices on, when Paul Reiser added the strings and horns to My Girl, it gave it a whole nother kind of uh, daylight. And I'm listening, I said, my God, this song has turned from being just a song to something else. So I came out of the studio and I went into the uh, control room where Smokey was at the control uh, board. And uh, I said, man, I don't know how big a record this is going to become, but this is going to be a big record. They released My Girl December of 1964. Uh, February of 1965, we were at the Apollo Theater. Mr. Gordon, the Supremes, the Beatles, uh, Jules Podell, uh, various people sent us uh, telegrams congratulating us on having a hit record. So, and I have that uh, telegram that the Beatles and the Supremes sent. I have it uh, right here in my home today. So uh, my girl is forever special. I love, I mean, I still think that song is so beautiful and I, 
I never get sick of the of the chorus of the the layer of the my girl, my girl, my girl. You know, right, right, right. Oh, Smokey being the uh, the wonderful writer producer that he is, along with the late Ronnie White. Uh, you know, they did a marvelous job. I don't even think they realized how big a, a record that My Girl would become, you know, and it has it since been, uh, been noted as a possible a standard, you know, so we never would imagine that a song that we recorded would take on the hue of being, uh, becoming a standard. But, but Otis, tell me the truth. Like, when you're when that song gets that big, and, like, there's, like, three songs ever that have gotten that big. And you can't go to a drugstore. You can't go to a pet store. You can't go to a shopping mall. You can't turn on the radio without hearing My Girl. At a certain point, is it a bit, is it a bit much? Never. How am I going to say I asked you much? You know, when people are loving it, just like I am loving it, and I've been singing it since 1965, and it is 2022. Never uh, a bit much. You mean, because like I said, you know, show business is so fickle. Uh, you know, I said that when you do get a hit record that the world has come to know and love, I could never get tired of that or get sick of that because uh, then they look at me and be talking about, are you all right? Because that's a standard, boy, that beautiful song. It's so apropos for commercials, getting married, uh, when you're trying to get next to your lady or whatever, you know, so it, it takes on a whole another kind of hue as far as loving it and accepting it for the song and the melody that it is. That's the most beautiful thing I can hear. And that, of course, was the beginning of so many Motown hits for the band. Uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Get Ready, I Wish It Would Rain. I wanted to talk a little bit about this song. The only person talking about love and brother is the preacher. And it seems nobody's interested in learning but the teacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, From 1970, that's The Temptations with Ball of Confusion, a track from their more sort of psychedelic soul era and also a very politically conscious song. Yeah. I'm interested in this time for the band. What was happening in the world that created this for the band? Well, what was happening in the world was just what the lyrics are saying, Ball of Confusion, which we still are. And uh, Barrett Strong, uh, they wrote it, you know, and they wrote the hell out of it, you know, because it depicts what was happening then as well as what's happening today. You know, so it's one of those songs that will forever be around because uh, it's speaking the truth. But the 60s were the most tumultuous decade within the last hundred years. And so we were singing the songs that was happening to uh, America in particular. And uh, it depicts on what we were going through. And like I said, still going through it today. Did it feel like a lane change for the band? You know, we did. We took that uh, change because we like to keep it interesting. We don't want uh, the temptation to be stagnant, you know, just in one groove and we can't do anything else, you know. So, you know, we just always been very lucky to sing about the times, sing about love, sing about depression or whatever. So uh, it's a song that uh, I really, and they still enjoy us doing it on stage too. You know, so it's another song that uh, really, really strikes uh, a chord with uh, people. I want to play another song from the record. Take a listen to this. The Temptations and When We Were Kings. That song is sort of a band about the band's history, the band's heyday. And the song names, as you just heard, some former members of the Temptations who are, who are now gone. I mean, you must feel a lot of emotions singing songs, singing a song like this about, about your old bandmates. 
Yeah, I do, you know, because I stop and think back, uh, wonderful guys, you know, uh, talented uh, beyond all rationale. You know, when I first met Paul and Eddie, they were singing, Oh, for a day in London town, hit me down, let me ride out in the morning with such a lot. I said, Wow, these guys singing progressive songs. So when you have guys that can sing like that, and then they can turn around and sing some funk R&B and beautiful balance, uh, you know, so I had the best of both, uh, both worlds, you know, when I have guys like and then Melvin down there in the basement, you know, so I was covered all the way around. Like I said earlier, I had the pleasure of having you know, some of the best singing voices in the business. But, you, but you, you've been clear that and you've talked about this over the years that what's the what's the line I've heard you say a couple of times? People love the temptations, but the temptations didn't learn to love each other. Yeah, that's got some truth to it. You know, uh, I mean, sad to say, you know, uh, success could be such a, a big spoiler. It's a wonderful thing to have and to achieve. But you got to watch it then because when you get in a certain position of having power, uh, a certain amount of power, you're making good money, uh, it can change you. It depends on what kind of person you are uh, and how much you let success change you. So I must say we did shoot ourselves in the foot, you know, and uh, uh that's part of the reason why I have gone through so many changes, you know, and I would never, ever sit here and denigrate none of the guys because I love them still, even though they're no longer here. But they helped build something that, like I told Eddie Kendrick before he passed, him and I talked. And I said, man, you know, I love you. And uh, we did something that's going to be uh, even when we're going to be loved. And he said, Otis, I love you, too. And, uh, you know, so we loved each other. But, you know, success can be a strong, powerful aphrodisiac. And hey, here it is. I, I've had to go through. I'm almost up at a point of 30 different guys that has been in the lineup, you know. But here we are, you know, uh, still um, enjoying it. I'm riding the hell off the horse. When I get off the horse, it's going to be bald. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tom Powers' conversation with Otis Williams of The Temptations. He spoke to Otis back when The Temptations released their album 60 to celebrate 60 years of the band. That's a little bit of the bird's first big hit, a 1965 cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. One of the founding members of the birds, David Crosby, has died. He passed away at 81 years old after a long illness. The singer, songwriter, guitarist, and let's be honest, true original is known for the big part he played in two of the most influential bands of the 60s and 70s, first with the Birds, then with the supergroup he formed, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, later joined by Neil Young. Have a listen to this. This is a bit of a song David Crosby wrote for the band Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Almost cut my hair Happened just the other day. It's getting kind of long. That's almost cut my hair from the album Deja Vu. As you can hear in that song, as you probably know, the band was dedicated to counterculture, to standing up for what they believe in. You saw that when they played at Woodstock and spoke out against the Vietnam War. David Crosby has always spoken his mind about politics, society, and life in general. Back in 2019, he was on cue and had this to say about the Woodstock era. You know, I, 
I would defend the values that we espouse as hippies, and I, w- I think that movement was correct in everything except the drugs. David had a couple tumultuous decades marked by a struggle with addiction, but he was able to come out of it all with a renewed dedication to music. In 2014, he released his first solo album in 21 years. Then he went on to release four more, most recently, for free. That came out in 2021 when David was 79 years old. He never reached the same level of fame or success that he once had with CSNY, but he told Q that isn't what mattered to him. I don't make very much money, and that's okay with me. I'm, I'm lucky I have a job, and I'm really happy about the the level of the music. I I think it's more important. It's crucially more important for me to to feel good about the music and feel good about myself. You know, that's that's one thing you'll find about all ex junkies. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're we want to feel good about ourselves, and so we try really hard. Uh, it's a kind of a built-in condition. When his former bandmate Graham Nash found out that Crosby had died, he wrote, David was fearless in life and in music. He leaves behind a tremendous void as far as sheer personality and talent in this world. I was thinking about it last night, as maybe you have too. It is kind of staggering what David Crosby was able to write starting when he was so young. He seemed like an old soul when he was a young person. And then when he was an older person, he just seemed eternal. Thank you for the music, David Crosby. If you smile at me, I will understand. Because that is something everybody everywhere does in the same. That's a little bit of Wooden Ships from the album Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We are remembering David Crosby, who died at the age of 81. That's it for Q today. Next time on the show, it's Linda Schuyler. When she created the Degrassi TV franchise, she wanted the show to be an honest and raw depiction of teenage life. She'll tell you how her time as a high school teacher helped her get it right and why it's important to let young people tell their own stories. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power, and I will see you next time.
That's it for Q today. Next time, Linda Schuyler. When she created the Degrassi TV franchise, she wanted the show to be an honest and raw depiction of teenage life. She'll tell you how her time as a high school teacher helped her get it right and why it's so important to let young people tell their own stories. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.